Thank you, sir. Good morning, church. How are we doing today? Good. All right. Is it still raining out? Probably. <laughs> Probably. It's Indiana. I kid. It's been nice. It's been a little hot. Just saying. Well, I want to say welcome to those of you that are visiting with us. Maybe you came to an Easter service last weekend and you have come back. Just want to say thank you for coming and spending your morning with us. For those of you that call this church home, welcome, welcome. It's good to see you. Whether you're here in person or you're joining us online, I'm just grateful that you guys are here and uh, spending your morning with us. Now, over the last several months, we have been walking through something called the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been walking through this. It's found in the Bible in a book called Matthew. It's in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. And Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. And Matthew wrote his book uh, basically to people that were of Jewish descent, people that were uh, Jews. So he kept record, kept track of all the things that Jesus did, what he taught, all of this for folks who were Jews to look at the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the things that he recorded were five major sermons that Jesus preached in his ministry. All right, so the Sermon on the Mount is widely regarded as the most famous sermon ever preached, and it was preached by Jesus, so it can't be bad, right? So for the last several months, we've been looking at this sermon, and uh, Jesus begins this sermon by talking about something called the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. And he starts and he says, hey, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is very, very near, so you need to repent. You need to look at your heart, because that's where it all starts. And so when Jesus begins this message, he begins with, who is the kingdom for? And he walks through this list and he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God. Blessed are those who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt apart from God. Blessed are those, and he goes on and on and on, right? Blessed are those, right? He says, this is who this kingdom is for. It's for people that respond to God with their hearts. And once he gets past that, he moves from who the kingdom is for to some kingdom principles, right? This is what the kingdom will be like. So here in this kingdom, we are going to be salt to a world that is in decay. We are going to be light to a world that is in darkness. We are going to watch how we get angry towards our brother and sister because angry, being angry and having anger held against your brother or sister is like murder, right? And he goes on and on and on talking about these different principles of how it will be in the kingdom. And then in Matthew chapter 6, he starts looking at some kingdom practices. These are things that people in the kingdom are going to do. So he says, hey, when you do your acts of righteousness or when you do your spiritual deeds, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, he says, check your heart, check your motives. Then he goes on to talk about what you choose to invest in or store up in. He says, are you storing up a treasure here on earth where moss will eat it, where rust will destroy it, where thieves can steal it? Or are you investing in this kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven where nothing can destroy, where moth can't get to it, where rust can't get to it, 
where hackers can't steal it. And then he moves into this passage that we just had read. Well, it starts with this word, therefore. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. It says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, right? And it goes on and on and on. Now, when you read the Bible, whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what is it there for? It's brilliant. Therefore, everything I'm about to say, but it, 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 it's hinged on what comes before that. And so we need to jump back a little bit, right? So we're gonna start in chapter six, verse 19. It says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right, so if we go back to the beginning of six, right? When you give, check your heart. When you pray, check your heart. When you fast, check your heart. Where is your treasure? Because that's where your heart is. Right? Jesus is so concerned with our heart. We've said over and over and over again in this series as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount that the kingdom of God is worried about two things, our heart and relationships. This is a central focus of this message. And so again and again and again, Jesus brings up your heart because the book of Proverbs says that out of your heart comes the wellspring of life. That it is out of your heart the thoughts that run through your head. It's through your heart the words that come out of your mouth. It is through your heart the things, the actions, the deeds that you do. Where is your heart? Chapter six, verse 24, it says, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. God and money. Now that's the English translation. If you look at the original language that this was written in, it would say, you cannot serve both God and mammon. That's where we get this idea of money from. Mammon, it means money, it means wealth, it means material goods, materialism. So he's saying you cannot serve both God and the God of mammon. You have to pick one because you'll either love one and hate the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You see, the worship of mammon, of wealth, material goods, materialism, the worship of mammon can show up in many different ways. It's not always through a continual lust for more and more money, right? When we envy what other people have, I like your truck. I wish that truck was my truck. It's the worship of mammon. When we are anxious over a potentially unmet need, man, I got this huge thing coming up. I got this massive bill coming up. I don't know how I'm gonna pay for it. You are worshiping at the feet of mammon. 
of wealth. I earned it. It's my money. I'm going to blow it however I choose. You are worshiping the God of mammon when you fail to trust God's love and faithfulness. Ooh. Because you're putting your faith and your trust in mammon and wealth and material goods and things that cannot love us back, things that cannot be faithful. These are indicators that our thinking is out of balance concerning material wealth. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Now we get into verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Do not worry about your life. Some English translations say, do not be anxious about your life. Some say, take no thought about your life. The Amplified Bible, it says, stop being perpetually uneasy or distracted. Do not worry about your life. Jesus is silly, isn't he? Silly Jesus. Don't worry. He doesn't know what's on my schedule. He doesn't know what I got on my plate. He doesn't know what it's like raising a kid who's got access to the world in their pocket. He doesn't know what it's like to be a middle school kid walking into the cafeteria when they don't have any friends. He doesn't know what it's like to share custody of your children with your ex. He doesn't know what it's like to to live with a medical diagnosis. He doesn't know what it's like to make ends meet when you're in between jobs. He doesn't know what it's like to be sober for the first time in 15 years. Don't worry. How many of you right now are worried about where you're gonna eat lunch after we get out of service today? All right, we got some more hands. You guys are second service people. We're closer to lunch. You're all thinking about lunch. I know for me, not normally when I'm up here, when I'm sitting in the seats, I ponder where I'm gonna eat lunch. And it wouldn't be the first time that I've had the thought of, all right, what should we do for lunch? Should we eat out or should we eat at home? Well, it probably makes more sense financially to eat at home. I don't know what food we got in the refrigerator and I don't know if we have the ingredients to make what I don't know what I'm gonna make yet. So now I gotta think up what I'm gonna make. Well, then we gotta go to the store and we gotta buy it. And I gotta go home and I gotta make it. We're just gonna go out to eat today. Well, where should we go eat? Not Cracker Barrel, because it'll be three and a half hours. Where should we go eat? Well, if we're going out to eat, maybe we should invite some other people to go eat with us. Who haven't I seen in a while? Who do I wanna go share a meal with? So you pull out your phone, you start texting, hey, would you be up for lunch today? Then you realize, oh man, my gas light came on in my car as I was pulling into the parking lot at church. I'm gonna need to get gas before I can 
go eat, well, I should probably text them all and say, hey, I'm gonna be 10 minutes late. And then you get a text from somebody who says, hey, call me when you get a chance. Call me when you, you get a chance. Like my mom only says, call me when you get a chance when something bad has happened. Because when good things happen, she tells me in the text. But when she says, call me when you got a chance, it means somebody's dead. Who died? And why couldn't they have died next week? This week is not convenient for you to die, right? I do not have time to go to a funeral this week. I don't. And you know how expensive it is going to be to buy a plane ticket to fly out this week to go to a funeral? There goes my tax refund. I was going to use that money to put new AC in my house because it's already been 80, it's April, and I am not built for the next six months. guess it's time to buy a new house. (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to get a realtor to put my house on the market, get the house packed, and go to a funeral when I'm so hungry. (laughs) What am I going to eat today? That was an adventure, right? What am I going to eat today? And next thing you know, you are planning a funeral for somebody who's not dead. You bought a plane ticket to a destination unknown, you're selling your house, you're still hungry, and it is 1140. And we do this every day, over and over and over again. And you know what it was that really put me in the loop? It was getting an innocent text message that said, hey, call me when you get a chance. It's that innocent thought that pops into your head, that puts you on a roller coaster. You wanna know what's interesting? The English word worry, it comes from an old German word, vergen. Now I'm Swedish, I don't know if I pronounced that right. Vergen, old German word that means to choke or to strangle. That is where we get our word worry. When's the last time you were worried about a situation and it got really hard to breathe? Your heart starts pounding. You get a pit in your stomach. Everything goes black. Your life is flashed before your eyes and you feel out of control. And Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry. What does he say not to worry about? Don't worry about your life. Do not worry about your life. Now as Jim is reading this earlier, he's saying do not worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're gonna eat and what you are going to drink. Don't worry about what you are going to wear. And it's really easy for me to read this and say that's incredibly elementary. I am not worried about what I'm going to wear. I wear flannel every day. I am not worried about what I'm going to eat. I'm not worried about water. We got lots of it in Indiana. How easy is it to read something like this and say, Jesus is telling you, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. How naive is he? 
the things I have to worry about, way bigger than that. Now, Jesus is preaching to people who are not living in a Western civilization in 2023. I, not once in my life, have ever had a day where I did not know that a meal was coming. I'm aware that that is not everybody's situation, but for me, I know that that has never taken place. Not once have I ever said, where am I gonna get water? Never had that happen. Not once have I ever said, am I gonna have clothes to wear today? I've had days where I've said, are the clothes that I'm gonna wear clean? Or is it what I want to wear today? But I've never said, will I have clothes to wear today? And so it's very, very easy for us to read this and say, what Jesus is about to teach on is not applicable to me. So we need to recalibrate a little bit. Jesus is in Galilee, walking around the town of Galilee. He shows up on the scene. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He begins his ministry. He is preaching. He is healing. He's praying for folks. He is doing this whole ministry tour, and he now has a bunch of people that are following him. Some he called his disciples. Others are the crowds that are just following everywhere he goes. And so Jesus walks up to the side of a mountain and he sits down and begins to teach. He's followed by his disciples and the masses are out there listening to what he has to say. These folks are an incredibly oppressed people. They live under Roman rule in the Roman Empire, which means they pay crazy taxes to support the structure of an empire that runs from England to India. And not only do they pay taxes to the empire, but they pay to a tax collector who often would gouge you so that they could line their pockets while passing off taxes to Rome. So what you had was incredibly taxed, and more than that, what you had was taxed and you were stolen from by somebody collecting said taxes. And you were living under a religious system where only the best of the best of the best of the best got an education, where you had Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law who would add above and beyond to the law So now in order to make God happy, you have to do all of these things. And in order to survive in the empire, you have to do all of these things. Oh yeah, and you're incredibly poor. So every day you wake up and you live in a stick and mud brick home. You live in a box made out of mud and sticks on a dirt floor. So you live in a dirty, dark house. It's got some windows, but it doesn't have screens, which means you got all sorts of insects in and out of your house. You got some creepy crawly things crawling in. You got some things slithering in. So now you're sharing your dark, dirty box with who knows what. And you don't have electricity, which means the only light in your dark, dirty home is from the sun through those windows or 
the flame of a candle or a torch. So it's dark, it's dirty, it's dusty. You don't have electricity, so you're cooking over fire. I don't know about you, but fire produces smoke. So now you're in a dark, dirty, dusty, smoky home with who knows what. Access to clean water is not readily available, which means hygiene is not exactly at the forefront of your everyday affairs. There's no infrastructure. Nobody's pumping your waste away from your home, away from your neighborhood, away from your city. So every day you're waking up in a dirty, dusty, smoky box with who knows what that smells like sweat, urine, and feces. We haven't even started talking about the animals yet. The animals that you are trying to desperately keep alive so that they will produce food for you or the animals that you are keeping alive to try and shear their wool, or the animals that you're trying to keep alive so that you have an oxen or a donkey to help you with your work. So you don't have a lot, and you're being taken advantage of a lot. And Jesus says, do not worry about your life. And I have the gall to call that elementary. While I'm chilling in my 1960s split level with heat, with AC, with electricity, with running water, with plumbing, with a nice couch and a 55 inch flat screen on the wall. It's not so elementary anymore, is it? Because at the forefront of these people was a preoccupation with living. How am I going to live today? How am I going to feed myself? How am I going to feed my kids today? We're living in this dump. It reeks. It stinks. I'm getting bit by I don't know what every time I lay down to go to sleep. Barely have enough food. I've got to walk miles to a well to go get water. I don't know if the clothes that I'm wearing today are going to hold on for another day. I have sewn them up so many times. So when Jesus says, do not worry about your life... He's speaking to a group of very worried, anxious individuals. Now in this passage, Jesus shares three different things with us. Jesus had three-point sermons too. He starts with the rule. Jesus says, do not worry. That's the rule. That is the challenge. That is the command. Don't worry. But thankfully, he's practical. So instead of just saying, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, he says, here's why you shouldn't worry. 
You ever met somebody who's freaking out about something and you sit next to them and you're like, oh, don't worry about that. Is that helpful? No. I want to punch you. Unless you know something different than I do, who are you to say, don't worry? Well, here's the good news. Jesus knows something that we need to be reminded of. He says, do not worry. Why? Because you have a master. Remember the therefore, therefore? You have to pick your master. Either you pick God or you pick mammon. But if you have God as your master, he will be the infinite supply of what you need every single day. Jesus says, do not worry three times in this passage. In verse 25, he says, do not worry about your life. In verse 31, he says, so don't worry. In verse 34, he says, therefore, don't worry. He means it. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. Why? Right? God is your master. You are his servant. Now, the master-slave relationship, we see this in Scripture a lot. They talk about it, right? You are to be his slave. He is to be your master. We hear this a lot all throughout the New Testament. It's estimated at the time of Jesus between 60 and 120 million people were slaves or servants to someone else. And for most of us, we read that and we're like, that is disgusting. Here's the deal. Most of the individuals that did it could not make ends meet themselves, and so they sold themselves to someone else to provide for them. When we think of slavery today, we think of people that have been trafficked, who have been held against their will, people who are forced into this, But at this point in history, people were legitimately choosing to enter into that kind of relationship. When you would sign on to be a servant or a slave to a master, there was a contract stated, our relationship will be this long. There's a time period attached to it. This is what the servants will provide in the relationship, and this is what the master will provide in this relationship. And so you had folks who legitimately said, I cannot provide for myself, or I cannot provide for my family, and so they signed themselves up to live as slaves or sold their family into slavery. Why? Because the master would make their ends meet. If you had a master, you did not have to worry about anything when it came to your everyday needs. If you needed food, it was provided for by the master. If you needed drink, it was provided for by the master. If you needed clothing, it was provided for by the master. It's provided for by the master. Right? So shed some new light when Jesus is saying, you cannot have two gods. You cannot have two masters. Either you will love one and you will hate the other. Or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Because when you're looking to a God to provide for you, one of them is going to run out. Moth, rust, thief. The master in heaven, his resources are infinite. 
If you are in a master-servant relationship, he has you taken care of. He then goes on to say, do not worry. Why? Because you have a father in heaven. So don't worry because you're master. Second, don't worry because you have a father in heaven. Verse 26, Jesus says, Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Now this week as I worked on this message, I did it from my home office. So I sat at my desk at my house next to a very big window looking out into my backyard where I have stacks and stacks of walnut drying. It's going to be beautiful. And on those stacks of walnut were like 8 billion birds. I don't pay attention to birds until you're preaching a sermon on birds. I watch birds digging in the ground. I watch birds flying through the air. I watch birds sitting on power lines. I watch birds doing all sorts of things, but I did not see a bird planting corn. I did not see a bird harvesting on a combine, and I did not see a bird packing out a barn so that they were ready for the future. You know what? I never saw a bird with their head in their wings worrying about where their food was coming from. They were singing. They were playing. They were gathering food. They were working. That's a beautiful thing. They weren't worried about where it was coming from. Jesus says, your heavenly Father feeds them. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Not their heavenly creator feeds them or their heavenly father, but your heavenly father feeds them. And then he asks an absolute banger of a question. He says, aren't you worth more than they? Jesus is sitting on the side of a mountain with people gathered around him and he's teaching them of how much they are loved by their Father in heaven. And in a few years, he was going to be dying on a cross for those same people. Taking on the punishment for their sin. Restoring what was broken between God and them. God takes care of the birds. He'll take care of you because you're worth more than them. I can't even imagine what was running through his head when he asked that question. Aren't you worth more than them? Little do you know what I'm here for. Little do you know how loved you are that he sent me to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. You know, it's hard at times for us to think of God as Father, but Scripture clearly over and over uses this term, especially in the New Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God as the Father of Israel, of a chosen people. In the Sermon on the Mount, 
Over and over and over and over and over again, in chapter six, over 10 times, God is referred to as your heavenly father. This is a term that Jesus used over and over again. And it continues throughout the rest of the New Testament. In the book of Romans, Romans 8, 32, Paul says, he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also grant us everything? If your heavenly father is willing to give up his own son for you, what isn't he willing to do for you? Galatians 3.26, it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. That because of what Christ has done on the cross, when we put our trust in him, we become sons and daughters. Jesus is our brother. We are heirs to the kingdom. Your heavenly father was willing to offer up his son for you. And if he was willing to do that, what won't he do for you? Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry, because worry advertises that we don't trust God as our master or our father. Worry advertises that we don't trust that he's good. Worry advertises we don't think he's capable. Who wants to stand in front of God and tell him that? You do it every day. Worry advertises that we don't have hope in what is coming. Jesus says, do not worry. Why? Because you have a master, because you have a father, and because you have a future. Christians talk a big game about eternity. I know where I'm going when I die. Well, where are you at right now while you're spinning over where you're eating lunch? I know where I'm going when I die. Then what are you scared of? What are you worried for? What is your future? The worst thing that could happen to me today, the worst thing that could happen to me today is I could fall dead right now, I could walk out that door and get smoked by a pickup, and I would die. And then you know what would happen? I would be in the presence of my heavenly Father for the rest of eternity. That's the worst thing that could happen to me. The worst thing. Yeah, we're over here. How am I going to pay a bill? How am I going to make this? How am I going to do that? How am I going to? You have a master who's going to provide for you. You have a father who loves you so much he sent his son for you. What won't he give you? And you have a future. Why worry? And Jesus ends this with a recourse, right? He says, don't worry. You have a master, you have a father, you have a future. That's why you shouldn't worry. And then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will come. How often do we start with our circumstances instead of starting with our source? 
Uh-oh, you see the weather that's coming? We might get hit with something. Uh-oh, there was a threat to the schools. We shouldn't have school. Uh-oh, we, right? On and on and on and on and on. We got a million things to be worried about. And that's where we start. And then what do we do? God, how could you do this to me? God, how could you let this happen? God, what are you going to do about it? Instead, Jesus is saying, start with your source. Start with your worship. Start with who oversees all of this. Because God is more ultimate than your circumstances. Invest in the kingdom of God. Right? What does that mean? Using your time, using your talents, using your treasures. Seek first the kingdom of God. Well, I'm going to heaven. I don't ever read the Bible, but I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven, but I don't pray to God. But I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven. I'm not in relationship with anybody that does not know Jesus. Why? Because I'm too scared to tell them about him. I'm going to heaven, but I'm not going to tell other people about that. Investing in the kingdom of heaven and seeking his righteousness, then what does it say? And then everything else will come. This is how we are to begin, how we are to start our day, the things that are at the forefront of what we do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will come. Are you investing with your time, talents, and treasures into the kingdom of God or are you offering them up to the God of mammon? Do you invest in relationships with folks who don't know Jesus so you can share the gospel with them? Folks that have been following Jesus for a long time, not going to call you old, you're mature. How many of you are in a discipleship relationship with a newer believer? I've been at this thing for a while. I've been walking with Jesus for a while. Here's some things you need to know. Here's some scriptures that really help me in this season. How are you investing in a new believer if you've been around the block for a while? Do you invest in organizations that bring hope and healing through the gospel locally and internationally? Are you investing in church planting and Bible translation? Do you invest in helping orphans and widows? Parents, are you invested in the discipleship of your kids? So I'm telling you this, man. Soccer practice really does not matter. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will come. Don't worry. Because of your master, because of your father, because of your future. So seek first the kingdom and everything else will come. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that a a sermon that, that Jesus taught on a mountain in Galilee was recorded for us. This was a group of people in Shelbyville, Indiana, gathering in a box in a cornfield. We could learn from you. We could learn not to worry. That the things that preoccupy us are not what's ultimate, that you are. Father, I pray for those that feel choked out, that feel strangled by their worry, that you would give them peace. 
in those moments of panic, of, of terror, you would step in. That they would feel a peace, that they would feel a comfort that they have never felt. Jesus, thank you for the work you did on the cross and what that means for us, not just that we get to go to heaven, but that you've restored that relationship with God, that we have a Father in heaven who cares for us. That because of you, we get to seek first the kingdom, that we get to be in relationship with the Father, that we get to be in relationship with you, that you've given us the Spirit to help us, lead us, navigate this world. Father, thank you that you can provide in every need we ever have. And I ask that we would trust you in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the team's up here. We're going to spend some time reflecting. We're going to spend some time responding to this call to not worry. To not worry. Right? Worry starts with our situation. Worship starts with our source. And so in a moment of worry, of anxiety, of spinning out, ask the question, what am I making ultimate right now? What is it? You know, the listeners of Jesus' sermon were preoccupied with their essential needs, right? Food, water, clothing. What are you preoccupied with? Because worry robs the present of tomorrow's trouble. It does. You spend so much time that you miss out on what is happening all around you in the present. You're so caught up spinning about what will happen in the future. Four days before Christmas this last year, my wife and I got to adopt a little girl out of the foster care system. And I've learned a few things as being a dad over the last two years, two plus years. I can tell what my daughter is preoccupied with. And I can tell because she tells me. It's called bedtime, and she doesn't want to go to sleep. Hey, Dad. Yeah, girly. What'll happen if I don't pass third grade and I have to stay there till I'm 18? You're going to be a big third grader. Hey, Dad. What do you think my biological mom's doing right now? I have no idea, girly, but let's pray for her. What about my, my sister? I know that she's with a really good family too. Hey, Dad, I don't like that as I get bigger, my, things are starting to change, right? My, my body's a little different. Yeah, it is. It's going to keep getting a little weird. Dad, are, are black holes real? That was a left turn I didn't see coming. The beautiful thing is that my daughter has no issues coming to me with what she's scared about. She has no issues coming to me asking questions that I do not have answers for. When did we get to an age where we said, I have to do this myself? I have to have it all figured out. I have to be smart enough. I need to be resourceful enough. I need to have saved enough. When does that happen? where instead of telling the one who can do something about it, we just keep it all locked in. 
So this morning, as we have a song play, go ahead and sing if you want. I'm going to challenge you to reflect. What is it that you're preoccupied with? What do you need to tell your heavenly father about? Here's the good news. He already knows, but he wants you to do it anyway. Because there is comfort in stating what you can't control. And then offering it up to him. Why? Seek first the kingdom of God and everything will follow. So let's respond.